Uh, you guys can keep your Bibles at chapter 5 of John, verses 1 through 16. That will be our text for this glorious, wonderful morning. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' second major miracle, the healing of the Galilean official's son, and we closed out chapter 4. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' third major miracle. It involved a crippled man who was near a famous pool, which the people believed had healing powers. And the religious leaders known as the Jews, that's the Pharisees primarily, these representatives of the Sanhedrin, they took notice of this particular event, and they sought to investigate the matter. Their investigation eventually pointed to Jesus, and this led to a confrontation with Jesus, which is recorded in the next sections, which is 17 through 47. This particular incident, this healing uh, of this man and, 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 and the religious police kind of investigating and all of that, this incident really marks the beginning of open hostility toward Jesus in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. So Jesus has been able to move pretty freely and, and minister and preach the gospel and do healings and these various things. And this is a critical turning point in the narrative when these guys, uh, his opposition, become kind of fully activated and begin to really persecute him and plan for how to even kill him, if you read down a little bit further in this chapter. This morning, we're going to look at three things that I see in the text, the setting, the sympathy, and the scrutiny. And I think it's good that we pray once more before we uh, get to work. Lord, we just continue to humble ourselves, and now we ask, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. And Lord, show us this healing and what took place here, and show us the, the great potential in Jesus for our own healing, and show us the pathway to healing. Show us all that you want to show us this morning, Lord. I pray that... Uh, you would be glorified during this time as we are taught, convicted, potentially even transformed by the Holy Spirit. I really pray that that's what would happen here for those who have yet to come to know you and for those of us who do know you, that you would sanctify us through your word. But just teach us the text, help us to focus and to listen and to learn, to apply. And uh, we just continue to yield ourselves. We thank you for... Uh, all that you've done so far through the music and through the prayer and singing and communion, just everything that, that we've done so far. Communion is just such a wonderful moment. I'm so thankful for Bruce and how he's kind of primed the pump for this moment. You're already preparing our hearts, and we thank you, and we love you, and we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin with uh, number one, the setting. This is covered in verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. I'll read it again. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, big awnings if you want to call it that. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid 
for 38 years. That's where we'll pick it up right there. First thing we notice that John tells us that after Jesus did some ministry in, in Galilee, the region of Galilee, after he healed the uh, Galilean official's son, the guy who worked for King um, Antipas, he and his disciples returned to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast of the Jews. John does not tell us what feast this is, and that's interesting because he tells us in several places in his gospel that Jesus went and celebrated feasts, and he tells us that it's the Passover feast. He usually identifies whatever feast it is that they went to participate in, but here he does not do that. I think it was probably the feast known as Pentecost, because that seems to fit with the timeline. That actual feast occurs 50 days after Passover. We read earlier that Jesus was at a Passover feast, and he did some miracles and things like that. Then he left and went down into Judea, then he went up through Samaria. So I think this is about 50 days after the Passover, which would be the Feast of Pentecost. I think that's what's going on here. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did not use one of the typical main entrances. Instead, he entered through what is known as the Sheep Gate. You see it there in the text, right? By the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. The Sheep Gate that's an interesting entrance. It's not something that, that people would usually use to, to enter through. They would use one of the main entrances. This particular entrance was a very small entrance on the north side of the city. I, I guess it's in the northeast corner. And it is where the lambs were brought in from the countryside for sacrifice. So this is really more of an opening where the lambs, the sheep, the lambs were brought in and ushered through to be brought to the temple grounds, to the altar. So that's the entrance we're talking about. This is a bizarre entrance for Jesus to go through. It kind of reminds me of the short door at Chuck E. Cheese. You remember that? I'm 35 years old going through that because I want to be a kid. I don't even think they have that anymore. And I don't know if the door was short. But it's an interesting entrance. It's where the animals were brought through. And once the lambs passed through the sheep gate, they were led down a one-way corridor, which actually ended at the altar in the temple. So once the animals were headed in that direction, there was no going back. Those animals were headed for death. And that is where, at the, the altar in the temple, that is where the animals ended up, and that is where the animals were slain and their blood was spilled and shed for the sins of men and women. Jesus entered the sheep gate, through the sheep gate, to illustrate some important truths. First, to show that He has come as what? The Lamb of God to be slain for the sins of the world. Just think about the parallel. Why, Jesus, why would you go through this kind of dirty, strange entrance where all these animals go through and all of that? You must understand, I am the Lamb of God. I am the ultimate Lamb. Lambs pass through here, but I am the ultimate 
lamb and I am passing through to illustrate that I am headed down that corridor to the altar of God and the altar of God is actually the cross which would be up on Golgotha. So that's something that he's illustrating here. He goes through the sheep gate to show that he is the lamb of God headed for sacrifice. The once and for all sacrifice, mind you. Second, he goes through the sheep gate to show that he is the gate by which the sheep must enter if they are to receive eternal life. Did you hear me? Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who goes through to show that He's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's also the gate that the sheep must pass through if they are to be saved. In John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus points back to this moment where they went through here and He declared, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The idea there is rest. And uh, nourishment, that's where the shepherds would lead the uh, sheep into the pasture. Think of Psalm 23. So he goes through to illustrate that he is the final lamb. And he goes through to illustrate that he is the only door for the sheep. Very, very profound. It just looks like he's walking through a door. Everything the Lord Jesus did was Specific, strategic, spiritual, everything he did had some kind of either verbal or visual impact and pointed to who he is and to what he was aiming to do at that moment. Just amazing. I'm just amazed that he goes through a gate and it has all this significance. That's the word of God, right? Near the sheep gate, there was a large pool. Some say it was on the outside of the the wall of Jerusalem, right near the gate. Some say it was right on the inside. I don't know the specific location. I don't know if it was in or out, but I know it was there. In Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus most commonly spoke, there is a pool there, and in Aramaic it's called Bethesda. And Bethesda actually means house of outpouring. That's the transliteration into Greek. Bethesda means house of outpouring. The people that lived during that time believed that the water in this pool had special healing powers because some who had entered that pool did experience relief from their ailments. Ailments like gout, these things that were common then. Because of this and this belief that that it had healing powers and the fact that some had gone into the water and did receive some relief, because of this, the entire community brought their invalids, people who are blind or paralyzed, lame, couldn't walk, they would be brought to this location and either placed in the pool if there was room or near the pool, near the water, uh, maybe under one of the five colonnades that was there, one of the overhangs that was there to protect people from the sunlight because it was hot and it's a desert region. So the whole community, would if you had a, a cousin or an uncle that, was, that, that couldn't walk, that was paralyzed or something like this, people would literally bring their family members, their, their neighbors, their relatives to this place and put them in the pool or near the pool under one of the colonnades because they thought it, they could be healed there. 
did a little research on it and found out that historians recorded that this pool, the water was actually red in color, kind of like blood. Why would it be reddish in color? Well, it had a very, very high mineral content. And I think that the high mineral content is what played into people's relief. The uh, medicinal effects of these minerals, minerals actually helped people with their ailments. I think that's probably what was actually playing out. Now, if you have a, a NASB Bible or something like that, you're going to think differently than that. Now, just hold on. Because your NASB, it actually includes a fourth verse, which we don't see in the ESV. Did anyone pick up on that as I was reading? That, wait a minute, there's a verse missing. The Bible is filled with errors. I knew it. No. The ESV isn't. I'm kidding, it's not an error. In fact, if you look in your NASB, there's probably a warning note down in the bottom in parentheses or something of that nature. But anyways, during some time in the second century, a legend developed that claimed that an angel of God would come down and stir the waters at Bethesda, thus causing the healings. This is actually a kind of a superstitious story that was told over and over and over during this time and a little later, and it became the popular view. So it wasn't a matter of mineral content back then, even though the water was high with minerals. It was the reason why this place is, you can be healed here, is because an angel of the Lord comes down and he stirs this water up and fills it with supernatural power. The early church father, Tertullian, actually referred to the angel in these things in some of his writings. During this time, or a little bit after it, scribes added the legend to the early manuscripts, not the earliest, but some of the manuscripts, as a marginal note to present the popular explanation for the stirring of the water. Because of this, some Bible translations include the marginal note in a fourth verse. For example, if you open a NASB, there is a fourth verse, which reads, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So, how are we to rightly read that? Well, it seems like it was a legend that kind of was born a little later and included as a marginal note. And the Bibles that include that as a verse usually give some kind of warning about something here. And then and the rationale they give for it's really interesting. The idea of an angel here and these other things do not fit with John's writing style at all. There's no mention of an angel anywhere else. Do I believe that it, it's an error? No, I don't think it's an error at all. I think it was there as a descriptor to help people understand uh, the legend itself. Anyways, the ESV does omit the last phrase of verse 3 and all of verse 4 because those two sections in this text were not actually part of the original, earliest manuscripts. What, what some scholars call the most accurate uh, manuscripts or the most reliable. So it's a really interesting thing, and that's why the ESV jumps from 3 to 5. Could it have been an angel that came down and did that? I suppose so. I mean, it's in the Scripture there. Uh, but if you have an ESV and you're wondering why it's not there, is it in the NIV? Does anyone use an NIV? Is there a fourth verse there in the NIV? Okay, so it's not there either. Why are you using an NIV? Just kidding. 
I just did that to trap him. So, it's an interesting thing. Is it true? I, it could be. When Jesus entered through the sheep gate, he came to the pool at Bethesda, or just before he went through the gate. And what did he see there? He saw a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lying around the pool, in the pool, under the colonnades. This is what he sees as he goes through. And what does he do? It says in the text that he basically fixes his eyes on one particular man who had been paralyzed or unable to walk for 38 years. 38 years. I don't know if this dude was 38 years old and born that way. I don't know if he was 52 years old and lost his ability. I don't know. There's no detail given other than he was unable to walk. He was an invalid for 38 years. That's, that's 10 years less than my entire life. That's 64 years less than Bruce's entire life. Oh, there he goes with those old jokes. Why did Jesus... Here's the thing that comes to mind, because I'm like a detective when I study the Word. Why does Jesus pick this guy? There are multitudes of invalids at this place, lying around, can't do anything for themselves. There's, I don't know if there's dozens, if there's, if there's a hundred, there's a lot. Multitude means a lot. Why does Jesus choose this man? Omniscience. Sovereignty. The sovereign will of God. This is why he does it. Jesus knew Jesus knew this man before he ever laid eyes on the man because he has all knowledge. And he knew that this man would become an informant and the catalyst for a confrontation with the religious leaders. Where Jesus would declare his equality with the Father, where Jesus would expose the bankruptcy of Judaism, where Jesus would illustrate the need for national repentance. That's what we're going to be reading about in the next sections. So Jesus picks this guy because he knows this guy's this guy and he knows exactly what he's going to do. And that is going to bring about a chain of events that God had already pre-planned and set up that Jesus would walk through this chain of events and be glorified and, and accomplish the will of the Father. It's just amazing. He picks this guy because this guy is part of the whole scheme. That's why he doesn't pick anyone else. And some might think, well, that's not fair. There's so many people there that needed to be picked and helped. Well, we're not God, and God knows his plan. Now let's look at number two. The first was the setting. So, right, the sheep gate, the pool. There's a man that's been chosen there by Jesus. He hasn't been able to walk for 30 years. Now we look at the sympathy, 6 through 9a. This is the Lord's sympathy toward the man. When Jesus saw him, speaking of that man, lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And it says in 9a, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Wow. In his omniscience, all knowledge, Jesus knew that the crippled man had been lying there poolside for a long time. I don't know if he was dropped off there and and spent a long time there. I I don't know, but Jesus knows that he'd been there for a long time. And as Jesus scans back and forth, you know, he sees all of these people and all of these invalids, and he sees people pushing and and shoving to get into the pool, right? The pool was pretty large, but I think there were more people there than there was room in the pool, and people were kind of battling to get in. And he sees this playing out, and and he sees the crippled man sort of crawl over and, and try to slide into an open spot, but But what happens is, as soon as he he makes a move, he makes his move, he's immediately cast to the side by other health seekers. It's this cycle of this man trying to wiggle his way in, but then he gets moved over or stepped over, and he can't get in, and he's trying to get in, he's trying to get the help. And Jesus is watching this. And Jesus is filled with compassion and sympathy. And he walks over to the crippled man and asks if he wants to be healed. And the crippled man basically uh, replies, and this is my little paraphrase, well, absolutely, but I got nobody to help me get into the water, and whenever I try to do it, somebody snakes me. They snake my spot. I can't get in. I got a big toe in. It feels better, but I can't get the rest of my body in. Mad living. And it's interesting because what the man actually thought Jesus was offering was to help him get into the pool. I got nobody to help me get into the pool. Are you offering to help get me in the pool? Because if you want to help me get in the pool, let's get in the pool. Try to do that. Like I just did. I don't know how it happened. He thought Jesus was just, yeah, I got nobody to help me get in. Is that what you're referring to? No, Jesus had something much greater in mind. Jesus doesn't need to to, to dunk somebody in a pool like a donut into coffee. Jesus can speak because he has power. There's power, the power of your word. There's power in his words and Jesus uses that power and he speaks to the man and he commands him to get up, take up his bed and walk. The commands to get up take up and walk, we're filled with supernatural power. This verse is actually linked to Genesis 1 where God supernaturally commanded all things into existence. Let there be light. Boom, light. It's tied right to it. In the blink of an eye, Jesus vanquishes this man's muscular atrophy and his legs and back were made strong. And and not only that, his motor skills were retrained, right? And his coordination was reestablished. It's one thing to be made strong, but after 38 years, you've got to learn to walk again. This guy doesn't have to go to rehabilitation. He doesn't have to get any kind of help at all. Bam, everything is restored. The connection between his mind and his extremities, his muscles, everything, he pops right up. After 38 years, he pops to his feet with his straw bed or mat in his hand, and he begins to walk around. You know? 
Jesus is probably like, no, you're going to hurt your neck. No physical therapy, no rehabilitation, nothing. 38 years later. I like what MacArthur said about that, 38 years. I know it's in the previous section, but it's okay. John included this figure to emphasize the gravity of the debilitating disease that afflicted the individual. Since his sickness had been witnessed by many people for almost four decades, when Jesus cured him, everyone knew the genuineness of his healing. I mean, people that knew this guy and had been watching him throughout the years said, well, look, he's something different about him. 38 years, fixed in a second. Such is the power of God. With God, all things are possible. What we think is impossible is nothing for the living God. After healing the man, Jesus quietly slips away because he did not want to draw attention to himself at Bethesda. He had not come to the pool to hold a healing service, but to change one man and in a few moments initiate a confrontation. Now let's look at number three. The scrutiny. The scrutiny. 9b through 16, the whole rest of our section. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, who were obviously nearby, these religious leaders, they were nearby. They saw some of this stuff going down. It says, so the, the Jews, the religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, this is the crippled man who was crippled, the now healed man. He says, hold on, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they replied to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. After, it says, afterward, Jesus found the same guy in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Very interesting. 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 16, and this is why, or this was why, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. <laughs> I just, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, and I already want to say something about that, but I'm going to wait. This whole deal took place on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Maybe some of you are saying, I understand what the Sabbath is. Maybe some of you are saying, I have no idea what that is. I thought it was a 70s rock band with the word black in front of it. No, it's not that. According to Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week on which we are to rest in remembrance that God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh day. 
So that's the Sabbath in a nutshell. It is the day of rest that God established. And it occurs on the seventh day of the week. Now, we typically think of Sunday as the seventh day of the week and the Sabbath, but technically, Sunday is the first day of the week. How many of you actually thought, you know, well, Sunday is the last day of the week and I'm going to start my week, right? I thought that for years. Then I read this and went, hey, I'm not right. Sunday is actually the first day of the week. And the reason why we Sabbath on Sundays is because that's the day the Lord was risen. That's the day He was resurrected. So the Jews do it on Saturday because that's technically the seventh day of the week. Christians kind of switch it up a little bit later. And we Sabbath and rest and acknowledge that day, that holy day, on a Sunday because that's the day the Lord was raised from the dead, right? Three days later. We switched it up. Now, the point here isn't, well, what day and all that. The point is, is that Mosaic law, the law that Moses issued, God issued to the Israelites through Moses, the Mosaic law, it prohibited work, or at least certain types of work, on the Sabbath. So on Saturday in the Jewish culture, you, you, there, there was a lot of things that you could not do. And if you did something in particular, you would break the Sabbath it wouldn't be holy and you would, you would disobey one of the ordinances that you couldn't do or something of that nature. The question that comes to mind is what sort of work was prohibited on the Sabbath, right? That's how my mind works. Well, what could you or couldn't you do on the Sabbath? Well, in all honesty, the Mosaic Law is a little bit vague in that it doesn't really spell it out. It spells out a lot of stuff, but it doesn't say don't do this and don't do that and don't do this on the Sabbath. The earliest understanding was that God's people were to take a break from their normal, everyday jobs. Okay, you work all week at a job. And back then, you, maybe you ranched, maybe you were a shepherd, maybe you were a tanner, maybe you were a carpenter, whatever it is that you did, that Sabbath day, that was the day that you didn't do that. That was the day that you broke the pattern and took a break. That's the earliest understanding, and I think that's the purest understanding. That's how it should be. I go to Chevrolet all week. On Sunday, I don't go to Chevrolet. In fact, I drive by and I laugh. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm Sabbathing. We need you real quick. Okay. Next thing you know, you're on the floor closing a deal on a $40,000 truck going, Hallelujah. Breaking the Sabbath. Going to hell. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Jesus is our Sabbath, ladies and gentlemen. We rest in Him. Think of it like that. I think that it was, okay, if you, you work this many days, you, you take a day off, and the day off is that Saturday back then, or for Christians, it's Sunday. And, I, and I, you know, I know we're not under the old Mosaic law. Jesus fulfilled it. But I still cringe when I find out about people, like, deliberately choosing to work on a Sunday, especially when they should be in the house of the Lord. Well, I got all these things to do at the house, right? I got all these things to do over here. I got all this stuff to do. I got to be at my job. I got, you don't understand my workload. Okay, well, Sabbath was ordained for our good and so that we could reflect upon the goodness of God. So there's so much value in Sabbath, but it's not law for us who are in Christ. But anyways, take a break from your normal job. This view was widely accepted up to the development of the first part of what is known as the Talmud. Basically, that kind of started coming together in the 2nd century B.C. The Talmud is the primary book used in Judaism. 
That's sad because that means that the Old Testament isn't the primary book in Judaism. It's the Talmud. The Jews give the same level of authority and respect to a book that's not Bible. And they follow that thing to a T today. The Talmud contains what is known as the oral traditions, which are interpretations of the quote-unquote unclear Mosaic laws. That's the best way that I could boil that down for you. Okay, so, so according to Jewish scholars, God didn't make it lucidly clear what it means to not work on Sabbath, so we've got to come up with what that is, and we'll tell the people what it means. God didn't say. And one of these allegedly unclear Mosaic laws is doing work on the Sabbath. And, I, you know, just the ancient rabbis felt that, well, God didn't tell us what kind of work not to do, so it's up to us to figure it out. And they developed these traditions, and they passed them down verbally over the centuries. Eventually, they put them together in a compilation and the Midrash, which is part of the Talmud. So since God didn't spell out what don't work on Sabbath means, we'll spell it out for the people and. Uh, these ancient rabbis developed 39 Sabbath prohibitions. See? Okay? Uh, just taking the day off from your normal job isn't enough. Here's 39 things you must not do, and if you do these things, you violate the Sabbath, and you're in big trouble. I got a, a handful of them for you. You could not build a fire on the Sabbath, which means you could not cook on the Sabbath. Even more special than that, you could not extinguish a fire on the Sabbath. Lord, don't let my house catch on fire on Saturday. Friday's cool, Sunday's great, not on the Sabbath, because I won't be able to put it out. Or I won't be able to extinguish a fire that I've created for cooking. So you couldn't build a fire, you couldn't cook, you couldn't put out a fire, you couldn't tie a knot. Some of the younger guys in here that still don't know how to tie their shoes, hallelujah. You couldn't tie a knot. You couldn't bathe on the Sabbath. Consequently, people were issued clothespins for their noses. You couldn't take a bath. Now, the prohibition that pertains to our text is that you could not carry anything on the Sabbath. I have just violated the Sabbath by picking this up and walking around with it. A Bible! You're carrying the Talmud! You could not carry anything on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus tell the formerly crippled man to do? Take up your bed. And what did he do? Took up his bed was walking around with it. That is precisely what he did. And as he was walking along, carrying his little straw mat, the religious leaders saw him. Hey! And they said, hey, buddy, come here. Why are you carrying your bed? Don't you know it's unlawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath? And he replied, uh, just, this is horrible. Well, the guy who healed me told me to carry it. 
This is an attempt to throw Jesus under the bus, even though he doesn't know who Jesus is at this point. Well, it's not my fault. Somebody else told me to carry it, the guy who healed me. Uh, it is important to note that this infraction was based on an oral tradition, the Talmud, not Scripture. Jesus did not break God's law, and neither did the healed man. There was no real law, Mosaic law, broken here. Jesus broke their tradition. And Jesus did this quite regularly in an effort to expose their hyper-legalism, their corruption, their hypocrisy. Jesus did this. They had hand-washing things. You couldn't wash your hand a certain way on the Sabbath, and you know Jesus would wash up or not wash. Maybe, I think actually it was that you had to wash your hands before you did this, and Jesus like deliberately didn't. Jesus provoked these guys. But he wasn't breaking God's law. He came to obey that perfectly. But Jesus delighted in breaking their traditions. Now, I want you to notice in verse 12 how the religious leaders skipped right over the man's testimony about his healing. They had no interest in his health, no interest in his restoration, did they? All they see is a man carrying a mat. That's all they see. They knew who he was. All they cared about was their tradition and the identity of the person who broke it. It's all they saw. That's how the legalist functions. That's all he or she sees. They see the alleged infraction and they go after that person. By definition, a legalist is one who adds to God's word and then enforces that upon other people. Conscious binding, whatever you want to call it. You know, I like guns and all that, and I'm a, I'm a kind of gun guy, and I've had people come at me, you should not own a gun, you should not have nothing to do with a gun, you shouldn't do this, or, you know, I like to have a beer once in a while, you, you're not supposed to drink, and you're not, you shouldn't do any of these things, and you, 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 that's all they see, you know? I'm like, send me another one. <laughs> you shouldn't cause a brother or sister to stumble, Amen. But this isn't always about a brother or sister stumbling. This is about legalism, more often than not. Well, I tell you, I see this in Scripture, and it's not actually there, but I tell you, this is what this means. And, and you, Daryl, you are breaking God's command, and how dare you do that? Daryl's like, I was carrying my Bible on the Sabbath. <laughs> Am I going to hell, Pastor Phil? Well, it's insane what people come up with and how they enforce it. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. These guys, this guy comes up to them, and he has not been able to walk for almost 40 years. And he's Fred Astaire tap dancing like a crazy man, carrying a mat. What are you doing? Not, dude, you're walking. Whoa. Legalism, it's, it's poison. Earlier we read that there were multitudes of physical invalids in and around the pool at Bethesda, right? It was much worse at the Sanhedrin where these spiritual invalids, these blind guides convened. These men may have had all of their physical abilities in place, but these men were dead spiritually. Going by laws that they made up, 
seeking to punish those who didn't obey them. Just disgusting. The healed man could not give the religious leaders an answer because he did not know the identity of his healer. Remember, Jesus slipped away because of the crowds. After being confronted by the religious leaders in question, the healed man went into the temple. This may have been the first time he was able to enter the temple in 38 years. Some Old Testament scholars believe that Leviticus 21 and 2 Samuel 5 show that invalids were not allowed to enter the temple. There's huge debate about whether that's true or not, but some believe that if you were blind or paralyzed or had any of those infirmities or anything like that at all, you could not go into the temple grounds. You had to stay outside. I don't agree because in Matthew 21, 14, we see blind and lame people in the temple courts being healed by Jesus. In any case, this man's lack of mobility and lack of a helper, right? He had no one to help him get in the pool. Verse 7 probably kept him from going to the temple. This is the first time in 38 years he can go in there and maybe try to worship. I don't know what he was doing in there. Jesus also went to the temple after he left the pool at Bethesda. And he saw the, the healed man and, and spoke to him. My paraphrase, look at you there. Your legs are working just fine. Now be careful not to sin again or something worse might happen to you. Jesus' sobering warning reflects an important biblical truth. Although Scripture is clear that illness is not always an immediate result of personal sin, it also teaches that some sicknesses are directly related to deliberate disobedience. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, 21 through 22, Moses declared to the Israelites that if they disobeyed the Lord, the Lord would strike them with pestilence, wasting disease, fever, and inflammation. You can actually bring major sickness upon yourself for disobedience. Well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it still can happen. When King David committed adultery and murder, he cried out, what? My bones are wasting away. There is no soundness in my flesh. The man literally felt like he was dying. He was so sick because of his sin. Psalm 32.3 and 38.3. Well, that's Old Testament again, Pastor Phil. And we're under a different thing now. Okay, yeah, right. 1 Corinthians 11.29 through 30, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that their sinful mistreatment of the Lord's Supper was why they were weak, ill, and dying. Maybe he does operate that way, Pastor Phil. I'm sorry. You know, just because, you're, because you've sinned doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get struck with an illness because of that, but it, it, the potential is there. It can happen. The most natural understanding of Jesus' warning then is that the man's illness was the result of specific personal sin on his part. That's the right way to interpret that. That's straight from MacArthur, and he's a pretty good resource. If the man persisted in unrepentant sin, Jesus warned he would suffer a fate infinitely worse than 38 years of debilitating disease, namely eternal punishment in hell. What sin was Jesus referring to here? We don't know for sure. It was a personal sin that this man had committed that brought this devastation upon himself, no doubt. But I think the Lord was pointing him to his unbelief. 
if you continue to disbelieve, what you will experience will make the 38 years look like romper room, a blessing. So there's a, it's, this is a heightened moment where Jesus comes to this guy and they're interacting and Jesus is telling him, look at you there, you're all set, exclamation point, but watch yourself or something worse might happen to you. Something worse might happen to you. How did the man respond to Jesus' gift of healing as well as this gracious warning, right? Because I think that any time the Lord warns us about the consequence of something that we're doing or could do, man, that's grace, right? That's grace. Don't stick that into the light socket. You're going to get blown out. This is grace. This is a gracious warning. Sin no more. What did he tell that woman who was caught in the act of adultery? He forgives her and says, go and sin no more. That's pure grace. Don't do it again. It'll be worse. And here I think he's telling the guy, believe in me. How did he respond? He immediately went away and found the religious leaders and told them it was Jesus who had healed him and committed the infraction. I believe the man committed the sin. Jesus told him not to. What an ungrateful person. You see, E.W. Pink, who I highly respect, great commentator, he spins it another way. He thinks the guy went over there to testify to who Jesus is. And look, this guy healed me and all that. I don't see it that way. Because the guy was trying to narc out Jesus before he even figured out who Jesus is, wasn't he? Well, it's the guy who healed me. That's the guy you want. This guy wasn't a believer. This guy wasn't changed. He was changed physically, not spiritually. That wasn't the point. He was an ungrateful person. He goes right away and, and he's a, he, he informs on Jesus. It, it's Jesus that you want. Get off my back. And in a sense, what he did here was really no different from what I do. On occasion, I take the Lord's goodness for granted. I blatantly disregard his warnings. Well, this guy's a terrible person. Well, so is Pastor Phil sometimes. No, so is Pastor Phil all the time. Informing on Jesus brought persecution because the religious leaders went after Jesus for breaking their traditions. There's the conflict that's going to stay till the end of Jesus' earthly life. It is now set in motion. The ball is rolling. And it had to do with Jesus disregarding their extra rules. The purpose of this miracle may not have been to win a crippled man to the faith, but to use his ingratitude and restored mobility to inform the religious leaders of Jesus' identity and then spark the flames of persecution, which led to the confrontation in verses 17 through 47. God works through all things and all people to achieve his sovereign will and purposes. He even works through the reprobate, those who will never be saved. He may have done that here. We don't know for sure. He certainly did that through Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, didn't he? 
everything's been so positive as we've been studying up to this point. Oh, it's going to get positive in the next sections. It's going to get incredible. We are about to look at one of the greatest all-time discourses, not just in Scripture, with what Jesus does next is just incredible. You know, this whole stage is set here. I just want you to, as if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you repented, you're trusting in Jesus, I just want you to, to be able to rest assured in that God's will will be done and that He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Even though we see something very negative here, God is working it out for His glory and our good. Amen? It's the sovereignty of God. It's insane. Closing. Here's where the rubber meets the road. In verse 6, Jesus asked the crippled man a question. It is the most important question this man had ever been asked by anyone. Do you want to be healed? I believe Jesus is asking us this same question 2,000 years later through His Word, through this text. Do we want to be healed? If you're like me, you're thinking, well, what kind of healing does Jesus provide? Well, a few things here. A, Jesus provides spiritual healing. Spiritual healing consists of being cleansed and forgiven reconciled and put at peace with God. This healing is received and experienced by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, it is the most important type of healing and it is the starting point for all things. Because our chief end as people is to know God and enjoy Him forever. Nothing is ever going to happen for us in any real positive, good way, unless we're first healed spiritually, which means reestablished in love and relationship with the God who created us. If we don't get healed this way first spiritually, this doesn't matter. Jesus came to die to heal sinners spiritually, to restore the relationship that Adam and Eve and all their progeny had with God. That's the first thing, spiritual healing. This is, we all need this. And the only way that it's obtained is by grace through faith. There's no magic remedy. There's no healing balm. There's nothing physically that we can do. It is a faith by grace thing. And once we are healed spiritually through the blood of Jesus Christ, everything else happens. Anything else is possible at least. B, Jesus provides emotional healing. 
Emotional healing consists of being healed of the emotional wounds we receive in life. People hurt us, either intentionally or unintentionally. We hurt ourselves more than anyone else. Either way, the love of Jesus can help us deal with these grievances and get past them victoriously. His love can even help us restore relationships with others or at the bare minimum, establish civility with people. Bare minimum. And civility is better than non-civility. He provides emotional healing. This is important. But it's secondary to spiritual healing. Some of us in this room need this really, really badly, this emotional healing because of what we've been through, because of what someone has done to us, because of what we've done to ourselves, whatever it is. Some people, it's it's just so bad, they they have to medicate like crazy or hide. I I went through a really, really dark time of 10 years of just... Such anxiety that I couldn't even be around people. (laughs) It's going to sound really weird, but, you know, I was in my early 20s. My wife was graduating high school when I met her. She wasn't my wife then. She was my girlfriend. And and I went to her high school graduation, and I had to leave because I had a panic attack. Left her there. Xanax and uh, Paxil for 10 years. And when I got saved, it was gone. Does that mean that I'm perfectly stable emotionally at all the time? I'm crying right now. No. (laughs) I'm not who I was. You know, you go to the doctor and they tell you, well, you just take this pill. Look, can we try to get to the bottom of what's wrong with me? Just take the pill. Something's driving this. I don't know what it is. Just take the pill. I'll take the pill. Then can you tell me? Just take the pill. The pill for everything. No help. My physician healed me. Maybe you need that. See, Jesus provides physical healing. Yeah, I still believe he can do that today. He does that. Physical healing obviously consists of being healed from our physical ailments. Jesus still performs physical healings today, but we must understand that this does not ensure that we will be healed of this or that because that might not be God's will for us, nor might it fit into his redemptive purposes. The greatest Christian who ever lived was the Apostle Paul, and he had a terrible thorn in his side, and it wasn't a literal rose thorn. It was something of health that tormented him and hurt him. And he asked the Lord to take it away three times, and the Lord said, No, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Physical healing can, can occur, but so often for us, having that there is the best thing for us. Healing us of it might be the very thing that leads us away from our need of His grace. But He can still heal people 
physically. And one thing is absolutely certain. Believers are guaranteed new glorified bodies and perfect physical health in the future at the resurrection. So there is a full-blown healing coming for those of us who are in Christ. If we desire to be healed by Jesus in any of these ways, in any way at all, it is not a matter of us rising to our feet, taking up our bed mats and walking. We must come to the place of healing and humbly bow down and submit to the Lord Jesus as Savior. What is the place of healing? Is it the the pool at Bethesda? No, it is the cross. On the cross... Jesus bore our sins on His own body, and it is by His wounds that we are healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. Prophet Isaiah put it like this in Isaiah 53. At the cross, Jesus bore our sins. Verse 6. At the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins. Verse 5. At the cross, Jesus was pierced and crushed for our sins, verse 5. At the cross, Jesus was cut off. That means killed for our sins, verse 8. To what end and for what purpose did Jesus experience these horrible things? So that by His wounds we might be healed, verse 5 in 1 Peter 2.24. His sacrificial death at the cross is the basis for our healing. We sometimes refer to Jesus as the great physician. If Jesus is the great physician, then his exam table is the cross because it is where God rendered the diagnosis and prescribed the cure. If we want to be healed, we must come to the cross and receive the cure, the Lord Jesus Christ. My question to you is, what are you waiting for? You must understand you're not going to get better on your own. There is no such thing as self-help or self-healing or anything like that in the kingdom of God. That's not the way it works. There is only God's help. Will you come to the cross and receive His help today? Whatever it is that you need. I hope so. Lastly, as disciples of Christ, let's be sure to never take Jesus' goodness in our lives for granted like the ungrateful man in our text did. Instead, we should be like the Samaritan woman and the Galilean official in chapter 4. They were extremely grateful for what Jesus had done for them and they expressed their gratitude by joyfully sharing the good news with everyone around them. Amen.